The following is brought to you by Unexpected Paths Media. Can you follow the Moscow rules? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. So, Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules, had a great opening on July 10th, which would have been my dad's 95th birthday. Lots of copies sold, and... Some people also bought Spy Flash and Spy Flash 2. So they have a whole set of the Spy Flash short story collections. So for me, that's a great launch. I was very happy with it. And I didn't have to go online and make an idiot of myself. (laughs) And thank you very much to everyone who made it a great launch. Those of you who encouraged me, those of you who bought copies, I've never had an author thank me for buying his or her books, so I'm not going to be that kind of author. So thank you very much for supporting me. Since April of last year, the year we shall not name, but it's 2020, I've had five novels the conclusion of the series A Perfect Hatred, the trilogy called Self-Inflicted Wounds, and a standalone, Love Death, two novellas, A Change for the Better and Dateline Belgrade, and one collection of short stories, Spy Flash 3, published. That's a lot, probably too much, even for an independent author. Add in all the associated marketing that has to go with that, either making my own graphics or contracting them out, formatting, planning the launch, so forth. It's a ton of work. And sometimes I feel as if my writing process suffers in the publication process, because there are days where all I've done is market or publicize, and I've done very little writing. As much as I dislike it, though, the marketing and the publicizing have to be done, and I hate it because it makes me feel like a used car salesman like I'm trying to con people into buying my books, but that's just me. It's something that has to be done. I don't have a publicist. I could hire a publicist, but I don't have the money to hire a publicist, so it falls on me to do it. I have a really great graphic artist that does about 95% of my social media graphics, so I'm very lucky to have that person to help because I am not talented in the graphics area. Now, I was supposed to have a new novel come out in December, 
not an espionage novel, but a literary mystery, I'm calling it. But a beta reader who read it after my editor read it made some suggestions I don't think I can ignore. So that may get put off for a while. And in 2022, I also intend to start publishing a new trilogy entitled Meeting the Enemy. Book one is Terror. Book two, Retribution. Book three, Rendition. So you might be able to figure out what it's about. I'm kind of planning for book one to come out in September of 2022. That's a while to wait, I know, and I have a few fans who are after me to write faster. Well, frankly, if I didn't have to do all the publicizing and marketing, I could write a lot faster, but that's not happening. I want to take the time to make that book the best it can be. I do that with all my books. Frankly, I do. But I always, you know, second guess myself after I hit publish. So that's just part of my internal process. I do want the time to make that trilogy a good trilogy. So I'm not going to do any flash publishing or any rush publishing or anything like that. So it's probably going to be a book a year, not maybe a whole year between books, but, you know, I'm not going to press, compress the time between them because I also want to have time to write all the things that keep popping into my head, all the story ideas and the characters and the situations. I want to have time to do that. But right now, we're still working on publicizing and marketing Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules. So the reading today will be from the story, Pick the Time and Place for Action. The Moscow Rule of the same name essentially means that you're the one who should pick the time and determine whether it's the right time for action don't let the opposition do that for you. In other words, bring the fight to them. Don't let them bring the fight to you. If you let them do that, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage, and obviously you'd much rather put them at a disadvantage. So you want to be unpredictable, yet predictable, per the other Moscow rules. But you want to be the one to pick the time and the place for any action that's going to happen. So I'll set the story up just a little bit. We're reintroduced to a character we haven't seen in a while, and that's Olga Lubova. This story takes place within the past few years, so it's contemporary. And there have been quite a few changes in Olga's life in that time. Natalia has gotten married and outgrown her need for a bodyguard, and Olga decides some years back that she really is getting too old for this, especially when Natalia has children and she doesn't want to have to run around after children anymore. Olga retires to Portland, Oregon, 
with her wife. Yeah, it's a little bit of a surprise. That's one of those epiphanies you have about a character when you delve deeply into their background. You discover things about them that you didn't necessarily plan, but which makes sense. So she and her wife have a lovely little house in an idyllic neighborhood, a suburb of Portland, and they even have a dog. And then the past catches up. Pick the time and place for action. Oregon City, Oregon. They picked this neighborhood for its quiet, its older trees, and the neighbors' friendliness. Portland wasn't far away, and Oregon City, a suburb, had everything an aging lesbian couple would want. A welcoming community, trendy places to eat, a nearby university with a lifelong learning program, and more or less mild weather. However, Olga Yevgenia Lubova was a Russian, a Muscovite born and raised, a retired KGB officer by vocation. She never let her guard down because happiness was elusive and impermanent. Bad luck was tangible and unending. Olga didn't mind walking with a chill in the air, even though her knees did complain. Their neighborhood was nestled atop a hill, which gave her a decent workout going downhill and back up twice. Her wife, Olive Cross, had always joined her on her walks until the knee replacement a few weeks before. Olive's physical therapist had indicated Olive should be back to their daily strolls in the near future. Olga would be happy then. She'd miss their conversations as they exercised or walked the dog. The small house they'd purchased when they'd moved here would have fit into one room of the house where Olga had spent most of her working life in America. Her tovarish, Alexei Bukharin, had married a rich woman, and they had built a monstrosity of a house outside Washington, D.C., for Bukharin's granddaughter to have a normal life after the death of her mother and the emotional withdrawal of her father, as normal as the child of two spies could be. Olga had been that child's, then the woman's bodyguard, for more than a decade, even into Natalia's marriage, which was how Olga had met her spouse. When Olga had been a trainer of spies and then a KGB director of operations, she'd engaged in no personal entanglements, discouraged them in her trainees, except as an exploitative tool, when she'd met Olive Cross, the divorced mother of a soldier in Natalia's husband's unit, Olga had realized love wasn't an encumbrance or a distraction, but a fulfillment. She and Olive had built a life for themselves in the tiny two-bedroom bungalow that sat on an expansive fenced yard where the dog they inevitably got could romp to his heart's delight. Beautiful trees and shrubs ringed the backyard, and Olga had learned the planting of flowers and the tending of them was perfect relaxation. She would, however, never think her life was perfect. She was Russian. Pessimism was in her DNA. 
that pessimism heightened all her senses when she saw a man she didn't recognize jogging downhill on the opposite side of the street she climbed. This neighborhood was secluded that had appealed to Olga's desire for security. She knew everyone in the small cul-de-sac. It was possible this man was simply a jogger who'd found the occluded entrance to the neighborhood by accident. She studied his black jogging suit with a hood he'd pulled up onto his head, black gloves, aviator sunglasses, though it was overcast, like most every day in Oregon City. What had she once said to her trainees? Black hides blood. When they passed each other, Olga looked at him. He at her. He did a double take, and his stride hitched a bit. Jogging was no longer in her repertoire, but she increased her pace, not taking the time to look over her shoulder. Don't look back an old rule established by the American CIA that they thought the KGB didn't know about. Olga breathed hard and fast when she opened the unlocked door to her house. This was a good neighborhood, and she and Olive locked the door only when both of them left the house. A step inside, and Olga smelled blood. Their dog lay in the entryway in a pool of it. Olga didn't bother to call to Olive. Olga knew. Olive could no longer hear. Olga also knew she shouldn't take the time to look, but she did. The man must have snuck up on Olive from behind as Olive sat in her favorite chair reading, her healing leg propped up on a hassock. The book, soaked with blood, lay open on her lap. Her head was bent forward. Olga kissed the top of her wife's head and went into the bedroom for her makarov and its noise suppressor. The man would call for instructions, ask what he should do, and he would return. She had to act quickly. No hesitation. The man would have backup nearby. She took her pre-packed bag with all the paperwork for an alternate identity from the closet. It had been a while since she'd looked inside. She unzipped the small suitcase and did a quick inventory. A couple of changes of clothes, a passport, credit card, driver's license, and a burner phone. She closed the bag, picked it up, took up her gun, and waited, hidden in the kitchen. She doubted she'd have to wait long. Whoever had sent the man had given him his target, but the killer had assumed the first old woman he'd crept up on was that target. Coward for not looking his victim in the eye, she thought. The front door banged open and Olga ducked back beside the refrigerator. She'd seen no gun. Good. Overconfidence, and she would be the death of him. She took one step from her hiding spot and put two rounds in his chest. She was only mildly surprised when that simply staggered him, that oversized jacket disguised a ballistic vest. Before he could catch his breath or produce a weapon, she stepped closer to him and shot twice more, in the head. He fell back against the wall and slid down, leaving a dark red swath against the oatmeal-colored paint Olive had selected after weeks of studying splotches of dozens of colors on the wall. 
Olga searched the body and took his wallet and cell phone. She helped herself to his cash, a lot of it, and his credit cards to help her lay a false trail. She picked up her suitcase again, stepped around his and the dog's bodies without getting into the blood, and took her set of keys from the peg by the front door. When she headed the car downhill, an unfamiliar blue one turned onto the street. Olga picked up the killer's phone from the seat beside her and turned it on. Luck was with her, a burner phone with no passcode. She dialed 911. Yes, this is Nancy Peters at 329 Wildwood Way. I heard shooting at 330 across the street, and there are some strange men in a blue car there. Please hurry. The ladies who live there are elderly and defenseless. Olga hung up and drove to a shopping mall on the east side of Portland. She parked in a far corner of the lot and used the killer's phone one more time to call an Uber. She left the keys and the killer's phone in the car and strolled with her suitcase to the store where she told the Uber to meet her. While she waited, she used her own burner phone to call a number in Europe. A man answered, sounding sleepy, and Olga spoke but one word. Domoy. Homeward. All right, break time right now. I did finish watching the Netflix series Spycraft over the weekend. It was only eight total episodes. That was a bit disappointing because it was a pretty good series. The last several seemed a bit rushed, like maybe Netflix said, get this done by a certain date, and they were like, oh, we need to hurry up. Episode 6 was a good examination of Special Ops and the Saboteur, and it focused a lot on the integration of CIA missions with special operations forces like the SEALs and the Rangers and uh, Delta Force. And the biggest example that we obviously know of is the operation that ended up killing Osama bin Laden. But it also went back into a little history of sabotage and how that became associated as a tool for special forces and for intelligence operatives. Episode 7 was about code breaking, also very good, gave a brief history of codes and ciphers, and there's a difference between them. And went back to the Revolutionary War days and even an encoding device that Thomas Jefferson designed and created. And the final episode was a great one to wind it up with. It was called Recruiting the Perfect Spy. And this is where we talked about, they talked about the main motivations for someone becoming an agent for another government and ultimately betraying his or her country. And it boils down to the acronym MICE, which stands for money, ideology, compromise, or ego, with examples for each of them. Namely, money was Aldridge Ames, who sold secrets to get money to keep his wife happy. Ideology was an example of a U.S. Embassy secretary whose ideology was aligned with uh, Castro's Cuba, and she 
sold secrets to Cuba or gave secrets since it's ideology. People who do so for ideology sometimes don't take money, but she sold these secrets to Cuba because she agreed with their ideology. Compromise, which is when you're blackmailed into doing something. And the example then was a British intelligence officer who was homosexual back in the time when it was illegal in Great Britain for you to be homosexual. And he had an affair with a young man who turned out to be a foreign agent and who then blackmailed him to get information from him. And then ego. And the best example for that, which I wrote a novel about, was Robert Hansen, the FBI agent who was so displeased that the FBI didn't do things his way because he thought he was smarter than anybody in the FBI, sold secrets to the Russians for nearly three decades just to show up the FBI. So that was a really, really good episode. Overall, it's an informative series, and it kind of fits the Real Spies' Real Lives motif that I use because it really shows you the reality of how operatives work. It doesn't go for the sensational like a lot of novels, and I'm guilty of that too. You know, I throw it in every now and then. Each episode is under an hour long, like right around 50 minutes. So you could finish it off over a long weekend. So it's it's a good one if you've got Netflix. It's called Spycraft, eight episodes. And now I'm going to do a little mini review of Black Widow. Whether you're a Marvel Universe fan or not, and I am, I have been since I was 11 or 12 years old and read my first Spider-Man comic. This is a good action-packed movie. The script writers riffed off of a real Soviet program from the Cold War where they identified children not just as athletes. I mean, they did that too. They would identify children they thought would be good at gymnastics or good at hockey or whatever. And they would literally take them from their parents, compensating them, and put them in a school where they learned only gymnastics or only hockey. Well, they did the same with children that they identified might be good intelligence operatives. They put them in a school where they were taught to think like, act like, talk like, behave like an American. And this was so once they completed their training, they could be placed in America as sleeper agents which is also the premise of the TV show, the very popular TV show, The Americans, which I've never watched an episode of. No, I take that back. I watched the first one, and then I decided I didn't want to watch anymore because I didn't want anything that I wrote to be derivative. So now that it's it's done its run, it's finished, I may go back and watch it. But anyway, the Black Widow movie takes that program a step further into the creation of female assassins using mind control chemicals. There's some scene stealing by a pig, which is absolutely hilarious. In fact, throughout the movie, there's a lot of great humor. Sometimes the action tends to overwhelm the plot, but be patient because 
the plot is there. It's kind of intertwined between these action scenes. But it's a good examination of what seems like a far-fetched premise, unless you understand Soviet Russian intelligence and the paranoia of the Russian state in the past and currently. So good movie. Go see it. Don't see it on Disney+. Plus. Not that I'm knocking Disney+. Plus. I have a subscription to Disney+, Plus because I like the fact that all the Marvel stuff, or most of the Marvel stuff, and all the Star Wars stuff is in one place that I can go to. But I already pay for it. I think I, I got the annual subscription. But they also have this premium level. And I was not going to pay $30 to watch a movie. I love movies. I love Marvel. I'm not paying $30 to watch a movie. I went to my local theater in town and paid $8 to go see the movie. And that and yeah, that was the matinee price. But even the non-matinee price, I think, is only like 10 because I live in a small city. So it's not like in Northern Virginia, where I lived before. I was not going to watch it on Disney+. Plus. I'm sorry, Disney+. Plus. I love you, but that was ridiculous. So go, in the, go to the theater and see it. It's on a big screen. It's much better on a huge, giant screen anyway. Lots of good visuals, lot, like I said, lots of great action sequences. There's a car chase in Budapest that is fantastic. It must have been fun to have been on the crew putting this together or to have been a spectator in Budapest watching this happen. Very, very good movie. I highly recommend it. All right. The pre-order sale for Spy Flash 3 is obviously over. But Spy Flash and Spy Flash 2 remain on sale, 99 cents each, for the rest of July. You can find them on the Spy Flash series page, amazon.com slash dp slash b09673. Now, Amazon will soon be introducing, they say in July, it will be available to the public, something new. Publication of stories as episodes, plus a whole new way to purchase them. The first three episodes of a story are free, and that's what they're calling them, episodes. And each succeeding episode you purchase with digital tokens that you've bought from Amazon is based on the number of words in that episode. So if it's a 1,500 word episode, it's going to cost you 15 tokens. Now the tokens you can buy in groups, I think of 50 or 100. And once you sign up for Vela and buy some tokens and you select a story, when you get to episode four, then they just take, they just delete ever how many tokens that episodes cost from your bank, as it were. Now, I'm not quite sure how, the, how well that's going to work. Maybe because I'm so old, I don't quite get why that would be interesting. I mean, if I'm going to go to Amazon and buy a book, which I do quite often, actually, 
I want I want the book and I I want the whole book. I don't want to buy pieces of it, but that's me. It could be that generations younger than me, and there are several of them now, that this really appeals to you. I mean, maybe you only have a few minutes on your commute and all you can get in is an episode and the same thing at your lunch break. Maybe you only have a half an hour and that's you don't want to start a long book in and then have it interrupted. So we'll see. I do have a story that I've published there. Um, all 11 episodes are up. It's called, and, and so obviously it'll be there when Vela goes live. The story is entitled Old Love Does Not Rust. It takes place immediately after the events in my first novel, A War of Deception. So it takes place in early 2001. It's another Alexei-centric story. You guys asked for more Alexei, so there he is. And this is an examination of a little of his past, of his relationship to his family back in Ukraine. In particular, his relationship, which was more or less contentious with his mother. And as soon as Amazon gives a go-ahead and tells the world that Vela is live, I'll post a link to the story on my Facebook author page. And I'm assuming that any Vela stories an author has will automatically be added to their Amazon author page, or maybe there's something that I have to do to go at it. So we'll see how that works. I think it's all going to depend on how well Amazon markets Vela and who they're marketing it to. So we'll have to see. I recall several years ago, they did this thing where you could publish stories of a specific genre I think it was called Kindle World. And people would just go in and upload stories. And I believe they were free. And people could go read them. But for some reason, a few years ago, they did away with it. Now, a lot of publishing companies, independent small publishing companies, were using that to get their clients published. And then all of a sudden, it was gone. And... The, those small publishing companies had to do a quick turnaround and figure out other ways of fulfilling their clients' publishing needs. So I don't know whether that's going to happen with Vela or not. I, Like I said, I think it's going to depend on how well they market it. Okay. Let's finish off reading from the story, Pick the Time and Place for Action. And let me set up, because I'm going to move forward a, a bit in the story, so let me set it up again. As we see from what I read earlier, Olga has begun her escape from the assassination t attempt, and she succeeds at that, and she's taken refuge in Geneva with Switzerland, with Mai and Alexei. So Mai manages, Mai's now the head of the directorate. She manages to get those two surviving Russian assassins, the one who, ones who come in the blue car, into her custody. 
and then she sets about fulfilling a promise she made to Olga. In other words, she lets Olga pick the time and place for action. And in this next few scenes, particularly in the last part I'm going to read, Mai is a spectator, not a participant, because she understands what's going to happen falls under Olga's purview of picking the time and place for action. Directorate Forensics Department, Geneva, Switzerland. Dr. Tasha Alford finished recording her findings on the body of unknown Russian number one as she stitched the second Y incision closed. She pulled off her nitrile gloves and the paper gown, dropping them into a medical waste container. Her face shield followed, as did the hair cover. Her short dreadlocks bounced with the freedom. Two of her assistants covered the body with a sheet and rolled the gurney into the next room for cold storage. A third assistant stepped in and said, The boss is here and wants a report. Why didn't she come in? Alfred asked. She said she wanted to wait until, you know, we put the body away. Alfred suppressed a smile and said, All right, tell her it's safe. Alfred gloved up again and began to clean her instruments before putting them in the autoclave. Her patients didn't usually have to worry about infections, but Alfred did worry about contaminating evidence. My Fisher came in and looked around, her eyes straying to the double doors to coal storage. Tell me, Director Fisher, Alfred said, her Oxfordian accent an echo of Mai's. How many dead bodies have you seen? Too many. Why? You're always skittish about autopsies. Well, that's the Irish half of me. Dead things. Alfred smiled. I see. What can I do for you, Director? Let me know if you found anything to identify the killer. And I need to borrow an instrument of yours. I have taken tissue samples and a couple of teeth. We should be able to narrow down what region of Russia he came from, and I assume we have a contact in Russian intelligence we can run DNA by. We have someone, yes. Excellent. May I ask why you need one of my instruments? Well, no. Which instrument do you want? Fisher pointed to an instrument Alfred was about to disassemble for cleaning. Alfred's lips parted slightly, but enough for her to lick them. May I watch? No. The fewer the witnesses, the better. How disappointing, but Fisher was the boss. This one is a mess. Use the spare one in the cabinet, there. Alfred pointed to a tall metal storage cabinet behind her. Will I get it back? Well, that's my intention, but if something goes wrong, put in a chit for a new one. I should return this in a few hours. Thank you, Doctor. My Fisher left Dr. Alfred wondering why she needed a bone saw. UN Security and Special Forces, Unspec4, Headquarters, Geneva, Switzerland. In her career... 
My Fisher had abhorred the secret rooms of secret police, the places where they did things that would never see the light of day or no justice. She'd been in a few of them, but she'd always survived. For justice. To ensure justice. In a way, what would happen in her secret room would be a form of justice. Years ago, Mai had harassed the opposition during an operation, and the person she'd harassed had returned it in kind more than once. What was about to happen here wasn't harassment, but it adhered to another equally as important Moscow rule. Pick the time and place for action. She'd deferred action for too long. Now it was time for a pointed warning, an unambiguous message. End this now, or face the justice I will mete out. And she would not be subtle about it. The woman who walked beside Mai as they neared the secret room had taught Alexei Bukharin how to kill his country's enemies. She'd trained the current president of Russia to do the same. Alexei had trained Mai to kill the enemies of justice. Mai appreciated the whole full-circle thing happening here. Some things were righteous because they brought justice. But that hadn't stopped the images of her past interludes on the receiving end of interrogation from marching through her head, and other memories emerged along with those. When Mai had taken the combat knife from Unspectfor's arsenal, she remembered a small valley in the mountains of Afghanistan where 30 or so Taliban slept on a cold December night in 2001. Remembered how she and her team had cut throats as they slept because they were the obstacle between her and the successful end of a mission. She remembered, too, how one of them awakened and fought her for his life. She'd won and the mission had ended successfully. At one time, that was all that mattered to her. When she reached the door to her secret room in an organization no longer a secret to the world, she insisted to herself her priorities were in the proper order. This wasn't revenge. Well, it wasn't her revenge. It was protecting all that mattered to her. That was her mission now. Mai opened the door and entered her secret room, which had no windows, no cameras, no recorders, unlike other interrogation rooms. This room was unmonitored, soundproofed, and when she and her companion were done, cleaning would render it pristine and spotless. The two men inside wore black paper jumpsuits and slippers and were shackled hand and foot to the chairs they sat in. The room reeked of their unwashed bodies. The two men looked at the two women and at each other. They laughed. They send old women to interrogate us, one said, and they laughed again. In Russian, Mai replied, Who said anything about an interrogation? From behind her back, she took the combat knife and handed it, halved first, to Algalubova. The two men stared at the knife, their amusement fading. 
My hand did Alga Dr. Alford's spare bone saw. My had never heard men scream quite like that before. I'm going to end the reading there so I don't go much past a half hour. I'm finding half hour to 45 minutes is a good length, not only for preparing the podcast script and recording and editing, but for people listening to it as well. I know it has to be a podcast that really holds my interest for me to sit and listen past a half hour. So I'm trying not to subject you again to my babbling on and on. So one thing I've discovered recently is when you write and publish things about the same characters, but you do it non-chronologically, it can become confusing as to how all the stories interrelate. And I'm coming across that. I'm finding that I'm going to have to go back and edit some earlier stuff to make it conform with the current canon. And I was thinking maybe I need to do a chronological list of the stories, the novels, the novelettes, etc., so that people know can know what happened when. I mean, in the books and stories themselves, I try to put in dates or I try to give you enough clues so that you know when it's happening. But sometimes people skip over those and I do get comments from people who's like, well, I, I just don't know when this was happening and, you know, how long did it happen after so-and-so? So, you know, you want to make it easy for the reader. So that's what I'm going to try and do. So this is bad news, but cases of the coronavirus Delta variant are on the rise in the U.S. and in my state, even though we have a really high vaccination rate. It does not meet the criteria yet for herd immunity in my state, and they're popping up, particularly among the unvaccinated. And it's not just here in the United States, it's around the world. So that's why I haven't stopped wearing my mask. And in some cases in public, I'm the only one now doing it, and I get looks, oh, she must not be vaccinated. But not wearing a mask is not good. Again, I am vaccinated, and most everyone in my circle of friends is too. But two of my grandchildren aren't yet. One because she's not old enough. The other because his immune system destroyed his pancreas when he was four. So we have to wait for medical advice to determine if it's safe for him to be vaccinated. Also, my masks have helped with my allergies last year and this year. So mask it will be for a while. So please consider resuming all the precautions that kicked COVID's butt in the first place. Wash your hands, wear your mask, watch your social distancing, work on getting vaccinated. And remember, while you're doing that, you can still keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for another episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.